time for the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Blind from birth, Luther King has never let that stop him from attaining his goal on becoming a blind broadcaster. And now, here's the blind broadcaster himself, Luther King. Welcome aboard and welcome back to Season 2, Episode 8 the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. My guest today was a broadcaster for the Minneapolis Indians and Nashville Sounds. But since the inception, he has been the day one voice of the Round Rock Express. Mike Caps. He is a baseball broadcast lifer. And we'll get into baseball and other things. Some subjects in this podcast can be pretty dicey. But there will be lessons to be learned in this podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Season 2, Episode 8, with the Day 1 voice of the Round Rock Express, Mike Apps. If you like this show, and want to learn more information, you can find all the information out on this podcast on the Facebook page at the Blind Broadcaster Podcast Facebook page. For play-by-play events, you can look up, also on Facebook, the Luther King Broadcast Network Facebook page. You can find me, by way of regular email, at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. Also, the same way you can find me on regular Facebook, and you can find me on Twitter, at king underscore TSB and I have an Instagram at L King dot Cardinalsfan85. But I am less conjoined by the voice of the express. My caps. And Capper, when did you know broadcasting was going to be for you? Or was that even on your radar at the beginning? Well, it's it's rather involved, but let me let me just take you through a Cliff Notes version of that, Luther. Um, I was a pretty accomplished athlete in uh, all the way from uh, little league all the way through, <coughs> and um, parallel to that, my dad was really good friends with the. Uh, with the news staff at the CBS television and radio affiliate in Dallas, Fort Worth. Now this played a huge role in my life and still does because uh, those, those guys came down and uh, spent time deer hunting with my dad and, and just hanging out with us. And so that was, I was about eight years old when I first met them. Uh, when I was 12 in the midst of the Kennedy assassination, we were in Dallas visiting my grandparents and my dad called his friends down at the CBS affiliate to see how they were doing in the midst of uh, that national tragedy. And one of the guys asked my dad to bring me down there. Now, as a 12-year-old kid mm-hmm. walking into a newsroom, uh, meeting Dan Rather for the first time, uh, I had absolutely, it was un- unbelievable the things that were going on. This is in the film days, of course. Guys were smoking cigarettes, writing scripts, trying to get stuff on the air. Mm-hmm. It was chaos. I was going to ask you about that. Like, 
how did your 12 year old brain when your dad, when one of his friends at the CBS radio network and TV network said, bring young Mike caps down to the station. Well, I'd, I had, you know, I'd known those guys mm-hmm. uh, since I was eight. And so that part of it wasn't uncomfortable. And I had been in one of the guys, Bill Mercer's minor league broadcast booth before age 12. So I wasn't unaccustomed to that kind of life. Right. Plus, my dad was a huge reader. We had copies of the Dallas Morning News, and my brother and I had uh, in front of us when we uh, – ate breakfast every morning before school and we had the CBS affiliate radio station on. So, so news was in a, in a sense part and, and sports part of my background. And I had a grandfather that was a Pittsburgh pirates you know, third base prospect until world war one came along and he lost hearing in an ear. Wow. The Argonne forest. And so uh, it, it was always there that life, the, the, the two paths that I chose both news and uh, baseball broadcasting and playing baseball, uh, those things were always there in my life. And uh, I just, I, I think if someone was to say, you know, uh, God really had a plan for your life in that regard, I, I, there's nothing I could say to refute that. That's just spot on. So for you, like, when you were getting the news, reading the newspaper, learning or sitting in on how they were gathering the information that they could get until they made sure they had an accurate report on the Kennedy assassination. What things did you learn at a young age on reporting on information gathering storylines, so on and so forth that you still use to this day as the lead broadcaster for Round Rock and what would happen later on when you would go to CNA? Well, that's, that's a good question. And, and let me answer it. Let me answer it this way. Each person has to learn that on his own. Yeah. You can go to journalism class. You can uh, talk about theories. You think this, you think that you think mm-hmm. the other, at the end of the day, uh, I, I think you're born with, the genetics to be able to pick up on that and have it just wash over you. And and it really becomes part of who you are. I've said this many, many times, Luther, and it really is the truth. If, if, if you are a trained play by play broadcaster in sports and should you decide to, to, to change careers and go into the broadcast news business, you have set yourself up in a pretty good way being able to speak extemporaneously being able to uh, bring amounts of, of uh, vision uh, to your, to your broadcast. In other words, making people see what you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing is uh, I, I think you have to have a sensibility on board when you're born to understand what is a story and what isn't a story and what, and, and a way that you can present it that makes people, stand up and say, really? I, I just think that, but, but, but being exposed to it at a young age, I didn't learn that much except I, I saw these guys 
at work. And when we came out of that newsroom, it's really funny because uh, to, to show you how things work out, my dad said to me at, at age 12, he said, we're walking back to the car. He said, you know, you might be able to do that someday. And I said, no, you know what? I'm from a town of 1500 people. And at the end of the day, I'm going to be a baseball player. And, and that's that. I, I just don't see that ever happening. Well, Luther, here's the thing. Let's see. That was 1963. Four, four years and a month later, when I was 15, uh, 17 years old, my dad died. Had a heart oh attack. Oh, my gosh. Gone. Wow. So, so, so but, but it, and it was three years and a month after his death that I read my first radio news broadcast. So if, if you talk to me and you, you tell me there's not a God in heaven, you and I are probably going to have a fist fight on the corner. Oh, no, 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 no. I, number, no. Two, number two, <laughs> and number two is you really have to understand that, that kids absorb a lot of things, and I did. And, and later on, after my dad died, all these guys – in at the CBS affiliate in Dallas were there when I had questions about uh, certain things that came up in, in news and in sports. And so they became in a, in a certain sense, those guys as a group became uh, a dad to me in that way. And Bill Mercer's 94 years old and he still does games with me on occasion. And he's still a father confessor for me and will be, uh, un until the end, it's just a blessing that I had, uh, being born into that. And, and I mean, they watched me, they came and watched me play sports, whether it was football or baseball or basketball in high school, baseball in college, they were there, they came and, and, and you cannot, uh, put any kind of value on, on who, they, who, it, who and what they were to me, because simply, they they meant the world to me. Mm -hmm. So when you were learning from the folks in the newsroom, yep. did you get the opportunity, or when did you learn about the MLK assassination in '68, or was that something that? You just watched on TV, but you didn't report on. Oh no, no, I was uh, no, I was I was only seventeen years old when that happened. Okay, so I wasn't even out of high school, and I didn't get my uh, I didn't get my door and my my foot into the door of a radio station until I was a sophomore at Hill Junior College playing baseball. Uh, so so no no but but. My father was a school board president in this little East Texas town, and he walked in in 1962 to the board and said, we will integrate these schools in Fairfield, Texas, five years to seven years ahead of state mandate, and they made it in seven, and they did it. My dad was not alive when it was finally done completely, wow. but they did it because my dad was an instinctive human being. He ran the only truly integrated funeral home within 40 miles of where I was raised. And do you know, we had the 50th reunion of my high school class uh, last July. Wow. And, and in the midst of this, uh, 
one of the ladies who was in, in my class who came up from the black uh, high school said, do you all remember when we showed up as a group? Now we'd already had partial integration. Right. And our, our, I haven't known those kids just for a lot of reasons uh, from the time I was about 10 years old. But so, so she says, I, I want you to remember how that was staged. They brought us up in two school buses and we were scared to death. And mm-hmm. there you all were out on the front lawn of the campus waiting for us. You came onto the bus and you escorted us off. And that was the easiest, most fun year ever. And Luther, it was. And it was because my dad uh, took the preacher at my church, the Methodist Church in Fairfield, and they then they gathered up all the preachers from black churches, white churches, and brown churches, mm-hmm. and they got them together, and they enacted this plan, and it worked. It worked to perfection. Schools around us, 10, 15, 20 miles around us, all had all had integration problems. Not in this little tiny town, not one bit and i'll tell you nobody left that reunion without tears in their eyes for what was accomplished there and when my mom passed away Mm. seven years ago the ladies who were taking care of her were all black and half of them half of the 10 were nurses and the lead nurse in that group gathered karen my wife and me around with my brother and his wife and our kids and grandkids Mm -hmm. and this lady said you never got a chance to meet your wonderful grandfather, uh, Mike and Barry's dad. But I'm going to tell you, for what he accomplished and what he did and and what the ministerial alliance in that town did, you should be proud for the rest of your days and pass it on that, that your dad, granddad, uh, is still a hero out on the south side of Fairfield, Texas because of what he did to bring the blacks and whites together. Now, Luther, that's powerful. And, and yeah. it, it's just a blessing. And I, I say that to brag on my father. Yes. But when you talk to me about Martin Luther King and you talk to me about uh, all those people uh, who had such a role in, in marching through the South and you talk to me about people now who are fighting uh, fighting racism in mm-hmm. police departments and fighting for equality for blacks. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. I was born right there with you. And you know, Caber, with me being 34, blind, and black, I'm still scared, to be honest with you. Because I never thought that we, I, you know, that this would happen again. But it's here. Yeah. It's just one of those things where it's just the elephant in the room has finally come to the forefront. About time. And, and, and who and my and the question I always ask is because everybody keeps asking, like, when is this gonna end? The only way it's gonna end is who is going to be the adult in the room to start the conversation. Well, and one of the one of the keys to that has to be everybody understanding that this hasn't just gone on in the black community since the days of Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. This has gone on in the 400 years 
since slaves came to this side of the world. This is not something that we're going to defeat overnight. Nope. But, but Luther, I will tell you this, and having observed uh, from age, oh my God, my, I, my earliest remembrances were my dad uh, speaking and in, in, in talking to black people, and they were friends and they came in our house. That, that wasn't done in East Texas in those days. But but translating it, when when you look at it, um, there's will, there's will on both sides. Now, cooler heads have to prevail. We have to be in a situation where the right people, the right people, are leading the country. But the beautiful thing that I sense about this, having seen this from many years ago, Luther, is is the the fact that now. There's a different feel to it all. There's a different urgency to it all. The protests have been relatively sane <laughs> compared to burning down Detroit in 1968, uh, compared to, to some of the things that happened in days after that, that really affected and shook this country. Uh, and in the midst of this COVID-19 play mm-hmm. and in the midst of all this <clears throat> racism we're we're at a fork in the road it seems to me that we've never been at before and i i think in sensing that and seeing that it really gives me a sense personally and this is just me talking that that there's a sense of urgency here that i have not seen in my lifetime in getting this done and i i, I do believe it will get done I agree with you. I mean, probably back in your time, it <laughs> probably was still my time. Well, good point. But I'm talking about like before. Well, I was a little younger. Sure. Yes. Younger. Sorry, I didn't mean to no put it in. Put it in I, that sense. I have gray hair, but I still have hair. <laughs> good point, Gapper. But. When we talk about, when they say Jack Robinson was the first one in baseball, but do but do we really know that? I'm not sure, but that's what we've been told. Well, there was a black fellow in the 1880s that actually played Major League Baseball, but that was they don't count that as being in the modern era. Uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker was his name, and you can look him up. Uh, and, and but but after that. You just didn't see one. You, you never saw a black person uh, unless they were. Um, well, you just didn't see. Them. You just no, didn't. because I think they were doing a lot of barnstorming things. And I'm reading a current baseball book, Glory Days, mm-hmm. about black baseball mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and talking about the um, Cuban Giants and a bunch of other teams. That you know had to barnstorm just to even find teams to play against. Yeah, and you know even even as great as you know, the old Negro leagues were, they had to barnstorm just to make make ends meet sometimes. So it, it's it's never been easy to do this in the game of baseball, and it, it in in my opinion. Uh, and of course, I was in 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 the South. They call it 
I was raised right. <laughs> um, and you've heard that term, obviously you're laughing about it, but, it, but it, yes, raised right. I've so, heard it. So, I've heard it many times. Yes. So thank God I was raised right. But, but here, here's the thing about it. Mm-hmm. There, how great would it have been to have seen Josh Gibson? Yeah. Match up with Babe Ruth. Yep. How great would it have been to or see Satchel Paige? Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And, and, you know, Satchel at the end of his career, if, who knows how old he really was, uh, was, was still throwing hard enough to get out major league hitters. That was great. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But, but, the, but, but here's, here's a, just a, a perfect example. Baseball should have been the place where it was all worked out early, early on. Um, because it's, it's such a gentle game in the sense that you have time, there's no clock, uh, there's no pressure. It should have been much easier to integrate than it was, but it just shows you how hateful people have been through the years. And yet so many came around and, 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 and became friendly and, and really uh, supporters of black people. And I heard it said one time by a, uh, by an ex-major league uh, black coach mm-hmm. that if that if um, his best friends in life turned out to be white men who were transformed from being racist because they were able to sit back and look at what they had been and like themselves a whole lot better now that they accept the fact that they have as white people, black brothers as well. That, that to me says a whole lot about what can be done by willing people who are not afraid to change. And in 2020, how do we, as we've talked about before, start the conversation and how do the people that are on the fence about changing their minds about, you know, where they are in their lot in life. Luther, understand I- that we can all work together here. If we all can actually start the conversation, and actually get to a common ground. I think most of uh, most everybody's parents really tried to raise them in in right <laughs> and right seeing. Now, now, obviously, that sounds a little naive, but the other side of that is very simply this: um, it's it, it's possible for people to change. We've seen it happen. We've seen some miraculous changes in people, but you know. Luther, in, in, in some ways, and, and my dad used to explain this to me all the time, it's easier, it's easier on the creation that God put in you. It's, it's, it's easier to be nice and to be willing to accept who you are and accept others for who they are. Mm-hmm. And 
and give off a light that way instead of being hateful towards somebody you don't understand. And at the end of the day, Luther, it's all born hate and racism and uh, despicable behavior toward people of different races. It's all about ignorance and not, uh, and, and, and all about misunderstanding and not trying to understand the other person or his views. You know, our founding fathers really were very intelligent. They, they understood that what they were putting in as a democracy uh, or a republic, depending on how you want to call it, uh, that, that people would have to come to the realization that they, were, they had to work together to make it work. And, and once you take a selfish stance, once you head in the direction of hate, once you get off uh, the mark of being the best person you can be and allowing and actually encouraging people around you to become the best uh, people they can be, no matter their skin color, no matter where they live, no matter how much money they have, then we're going to be a better society. And that's not what we're seeing right now. And that, that concerns me. And, and, but I still think, I still think right-minded people being calm and collected and, uh, and connected through God, no matter how you worship God. I think that's, that's the answer to the healing. I, I think it's, it's the way to go. So did you get the opportunity to do broadcasting at your college? And if so, what things were you learning with teaching and what things did you feel like you learned on your own from a young that, age, from the things that you were learned that you had learned before you even stepped foot into a school. Luther, this is a great, great, great question. Um, I got into some uh, uh, some trouble in school in terms of. I'll just tell you a quick story about this. Um, I had a very low draft number in 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 that first draft where guys were drafted into Vietnam mm-hmm. and I had a, a class and I was telling this story to a friend of mine today. And, and I think he, I think he heard himself. He was laughing so hard, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, I said, look, here's, here's the deal. <clears throat> I had made an F in a computer key punch class. It was a four hour class. And of course the, the laboratory for the class was butted up against baseball practice and batting practice. Well, I went to batting practice most of the time and didn't do the computer key punch programs. And when I did, I would I always wore my uh, workout uniform. And of course it hadn't been washed in three or four days. And of course it smelled. So I had, I had a lot of stuff going against me there besides being a, a knucklehead. And I, I never could make the computer key punch thing work. Do a little, do a little reconnoiter on this, a little study on it after, after this is done and you'll, you'll, You'll find out how it worked, but the ch- the cards that you were punching, mine would always get chewed up, and I'd get mad, uh, grab my bat and glove and take off to practice. So I got an F in the class. So 
So now um, I've got to, I got to make a grade and I'm in a, in a, in a, uh, in a journalism class mm-hmm. at, at, at this junior college. And we had to find a term, uh, a term uh, project and it needed to be writing for somebody like a newspaper or something like that. Well, uh, two teammates of mine and I were in this class and we could, we went to five or six little newspapers, little weekly newspapers around this college town and we couldn't find any work. Now, now I'm really starting to sweat because if I fail two classes, I'm, I'm, I'm off to Vietnam. There's no question. So after practice one day, we're having a couple pops and we, and I see the radio station antenna. <laughs> I said, boys get in the car. We're going to the radio station. They go, what? So we get in the car and I march them in there and the, the general manager of the station meets us at the door and, <laughs> and he says, what can I do for you guys? We, we, we need to work for you as interns. Nope. Get out. I said, well, you know, we're, baseball he said i know your baseball players i see your pictures in the paper when you have games ah, so he said i got no place for you i said we'll do it free well free got us in and so here we are 19 years old we get in the we get back in the car and we've got two hours on this coming saturday and it's thursday two hours to fill we're 19 years old we don't know what we're doing so <laughs> So we get the, the guy who was uh, the main disc jockey at this radio station um, caught us outside before we left. And he said, look, I'll help you guys. I'll come in on Saturday. I'll, I'll show you what to do. So all he did was suggest that since it was a college football Saturday, uh, that first we read the high school scores from around the area. And then we take telephone calls and that worked. And then we, we, talk about the um, the college games coming up in the area in Texas where we were, were at and that worked and we were a hit. And so by the time I got done playing baseball, I, I was ready to go to a four year school. And so I, I walk in and get a job at a radio station in Huntsville, Texas and mm-hmm. worked two and a half years there. So by the time I was out of college, I had already done radio news reporting and broadcasting. I'd done play-by-play, collegiate play-by-play. They had a great baseball team, great basketball team at Sam Houston State in those those years, and I got to broadcast those. And so I walked right into into a a radio and TV situation in Beaumont, Texas, and I had basically um, learned so much from being in that situation. Uh, yeah, I took classes, but uh, I was doing this and the rest of them weren't. And, um, it was to my advantage because I could actually teach some of these kids some things. And it was just, it was a great, it was a great experience. And, and, and I don't know how in the world you'd ever replicate that now, but that, it, that was a blessing for me. I mean, that, that was another gift from God that I was allowed to do that. And, and gosh, Luther, because of that, I was working in a major market television station when I was 23 years old. That's way too young to be in a big, a big place like Houston, but I was, and it was just because I'd had that training. And, and going back to that computer key punch, I made an F in the class. Okay. <laughs> so 
I'm home washing some clothes on a Sunday afternoon before I had to go back to school. And my mother sees the F on my report card. And she oh, said, Mind telling me what this is in. And I said, uh, yeah, computer key punch. She said, there's a life magazine over there. Right on, right, right on the kitchen table. I want you to go look at it. So I thumbed through this life magazine, Luther. And it, there's four pictures of chimpanzees being trained to do computer key punch. What? Yes. No way. Yes way. <laughs> and so my mother looks at me and she says, let's see, you made an F in the class and they're teaching those guys to do that. Where does that leave you on the food chain? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll put it this way. I'll put it this way. Mom yeah. had a good point. Mom had no uh, mom. Mom, God rest her soul. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've told my kids and grandkids that story, and, and, and they, they, you know, they're not surprised because they know what a whack job I am, and they go, "Yeah, right, well, we could see that happening." Yep. Okay. Yep. So, answer me this. Okay. When you were doing the job in Houston, yeah, how did CNN either find you or did you find CNN? And what was your role? There was no CNN in 1974 when I was in my first major market station. Ah. I was in Houston for six years. I covered police news. And the police blotter? It was wild. I mean, uh, <laughs> 700 murders a year, uh, just just police corruption. You, you'd have to you'd get in a history book and read about Houston in the 1970s police. Holy cow. So I go from there to uh, an all-news radio station in, in St. Louis, was there less than a year, <laughs> come back to Texas to the ABC affiliate in Dallas-Fort Worth, was there 10 years off and on with a year in management at ABC where I was the deputy bureau chief of the Midwest Bureau and in charge of ABC's news coverage over 12 states. And uh, I come back to Dallas for a year and a half, and then I'm off to CNN. And I was there five years, uh, covered the Gulf War, the Branch Davidian siege, a whole bunch of stuff like that, and just finally burned completely out and needed some, needed some psychological care and just needed to rebuild my insides and my spirituality and everything else. And, um, quit CNN, wrote a baseball book with a scout who discovered Nolan Ryan and then uh, got into baseball broadcasting. And I've been in that now 25 years and 21 of those in round run. So I listened to a podcast about the Branch Davidians and yeah. what was that coverage from a person who actually did a lot of the coverage. Well, I was there all one days and I broadcast the last nine, 10 hours of it live worldwide. What was it like? Yeah. What, what was that experience and how were you able to keep your cool, even though you know, you had to talk about the tragedies and the people that died in the place and the police using the tear gas and everything else. And, those people who actually sur who survived and things like that with the Branch Davidians and then with the Gulf War. 
Well, How were you able to handle both? The, the Gulf War was five years ahead of the Branch Davidian, so three years ahead of the Branch Davidian seed. So it's they're two completely different questions. Let me take the Gulf War thing first. Um, that one might be easier. It's well, it is. Uh, <laughs> that was just that was just part of an assignment. Um, <coughs> the the I, I saw worse combat in the mountains in northern Iraq after the, the original Gulf War was over. Uh, the Pesh, Peshmerga, you've heard of the Peshmerga. They are uh, still to this day a force in Kurdish Iraq, and they were trained initially as 18, 19 year olds by the British Royal Marines. Now the first group of Iraqi Republican guard to encounter and fight against the Americans on the floor of the desert, uh, got scared of the Americans, threw down their munitions, raced back through, uh, uh, central, uh, Iraq, rearmed in Baghdad and went up into the mountains on the Turkish Iraqi border and chased people out of their homes. And the British Royal Marines came in and said, we're going to teach you guys to fight. And they did. And I'm telling you, those kids would crawl in there on their bellies and steal their guns and, uh, from, from the Iraqis and start shooting at them. It was wild. They're wild, wild, wild. No way. Uh, that, that, yeah, that was my role in there. And there's a, you know, the, the, the whole thing was crazy. Uh, then the three years later, uh, this 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 branch Davidian siege broke out on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. and uh, it was twenty two degrees and sleeting, and it, it, it was ugly. And I get I, I drove down from Dallas where I was based, and the guy who was standing in the middle of the road was a guy I knew from Oklahoma. He was had been the uh, the, uh, uh, the head of the Oklahoma Department of Investigation. And mm-hmm. I got out of the car and he said, Cappy, I got to tell you something. This is a liar's convention. What's happened here is absolutely out of control. And, and you just have to read the history and understand that he said, but he's, he's, this guy's with the FBI now. And he said, they're going to have a news conference every day at 10 o'clock. And you come and see me after it's over. And we'll tell you what, what, what they say and the way we see it and the way we think it's going to work out. And he was the one that ultimately tipped us off about the, the uh, end day of that 51 days later. Um, and it and was that was, crap. I'm trying to think, was that, that was Koresh and that bunch, right? That was David Koresh. That's right. That's what I thought. And I'm trying to think, cause I know there was like, whole there was like one guy that was on the, on the um, force at the beginning. And then I think the first of Washington, let me don't let's don't complicate this. Okay. There was a whole lot of a whole lot of that. Uh, guys were there, and then they weren't. I'm talking about branch divisions, right? And telling different kind of stories, and the whole thing just got convoluted to the point where, if you were to walk in a library right now and start pulling books out about that, you'd probably get seven or eight different stories about what really happened, and. Uh, the whole thing is still in my mind convoluted, but, <laughs> but, but I will just tell you this. Um, there was a way to have peacefully done this one. And the, the uh, sheriff from uh, McLennan County, which is 
uh, where Waco is in central mm-hmm. Texas, went to the uh, federal officials. This was the Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco and Firearms, ATF, mm-hmm. and said, look, I can arrest David Koresh with no problem. And let me do that. We'll avoid bloodshed and let's just do that. And they said, no. Now remember, this is right at the beginning of the Clinton administration and Clinton and Gore had promised throughout that campaign they ran that they were going to combine federal police agencies and, uh, and save a lot of money doing that because a lot of federal police agencies to this day do the same kinds of things. Well, the head of the ATF was having nothing to do with that. He was going to show everybody how powerful his bunch was, and they picked the Branch Davidians, and away we went. That's the way it worked out. And um, there's a lot of ancillary stories about uh, who did who to what and uh, whether uh, how pristine or not pristine Koresh was and he was not a very pristine guy and uh, the whole lot of nonsense to it but it ended in a a blazing inferno they punched uh, the tanks came in uh, and punched holes in the side of the wall and they blew in what was they claimed was non-incendiary tear gas there's no such thing by the way and and just burn it down and killed 87 people and that's essentially what happened. And I told this story again to a friend today, oddly, uh, and, <laughs> and it had to do with the end of that. And I came walking out of there and I walked up. I'd not been within 50 yards of that place in the 51 days. I wanted to see what was, what was there. And of course it was, there were just smoldering ruins. I'm walking back down and Dan rather and his producer, uh, stopped me and they, they've been watching on TV and I knew rather s- since my days in Houston mm-hmm. and actually before that. And, and <laughs> he was very congratulatory. And then Peter Jennings, who I knew through my days at the TV station in Dallas was congratulatory. And, and I, after I'm, I'm done talking to these guys, I'm walking back to the area where we were and we were operating out of a, of a trader home that had been set up as a TV studio. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, good God almighty. I missed opening day of the baseball season. <laughs> now that should have told me something about being in the wrong profession too long. Right. <laughs> Maybe. And, 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 uh, I couldn't, I couldn't get out then, but, uh, less than two years later, I was, out of it and into baseball. Thank God. So what was your first baseball team you actually covered? <laughs> you mean did play by play for? Mm-hmm. Okay. You probably never heard of the Texas Louisiana league. No. It was a little, I've, heard, I've- I've heard of the Texas League, but not this league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this was an independent league that formed in like 1993 or 94. Mm-hmm. And by 96, I, I was free from the book. I'd written the book and had it published. And the, so I got a job 
supposedly doing only road games for the Tyler Wildcatters. <laughs> and we play the Amarillo Dillas, the Lubbock Crickets, the Alexandria, <laughs> Louisiana Aces, the Rio Grande Valley White Wings. Wow. And one or two others. Um, one, one of the highlights of that year, uh, I was chosen to do the All-Star game out in Lubbock. And uh, they didn't sell beer in any of the ballparks in the Texas-Louisiana League. And that, that – well, maybe – well, they did in Amarillo and they did in Alexandria and they did in the Rio Grande. But some of these places couldn't sell it. Couldn't sell it in Lubbock because it, 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 the ballpark was the Texas Tech ballpark and state whatever, state rules, whatever. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they had this all-star game. And and as an added attraction, they they invited all the mascots, uh, the Tyler Wildcatter, the Amarillo Dilla, the Abilene Prairie Dog, uh, <laughs> the Rio Grande Valley, all to come on and, and – and and uh, and and participate in the All Star. So apparently, the uh, the uh, Lubbock Cricket, Jimmy Cricket, Jiminy Cricket was his name, <laughs> and the Abilene Prairie Dog, and I can't remember what his name was. They had a disagreement right behind home plate. At the seventh inning stretch time. Now, this is an outdoor game that started at about 4.30 in the afternoon, and it was 100 degrees, and nobody had any beer, but they were they, they all had flasks of whiskey, and, and half the whole stadium was drunk as a skunk. Well, anyway, so the, the uh, Prairie Dog and the Lubbock Cricket, Jimmy Cricket, get in it. Oh, boy. And, I mean – they're not just pushing and shoving and, and playing around like you see some of the little mascots play. Mm-hmm. They got they got their headgears off and they're wailing away at each other. I mean, knock down drag out. <laughs> now the umpires try to break this up and all the other mascots get mixed up and then fans start coming down from outside from from the stands and oh, they're no. wailing away at each other. Oh, and no. so you have a melee there and and, and you got Lubbock Patty Police Patty Wagon backed up, <laughs> dragging people in and hauling them in and out of the police station. Oh my! And the next day in the paper, there's Jimmy Cricket winding up, <laughs> taking a slide at the Prairie Dog. And, oh my! Oh, fun times. Fun oh jeez. So, time. when you were doing that league, yeah, how did Nashville come to the picture? Well, let's see. Um, I had that, that was my first time to ever do baseball other than at Sam Houston State and so I got I actually was interviewed by the Baltimore Orioles I sent the guy a tape and I got, got an interview it didn't work out but uh, I had a job actually in Quad Cities for the River Bandits mm-hmm. and the guy <laughs> the guy missed about three payroll calls, the owner. And so I'm down at the bank in the Quad Cities, right close to the ballpark. And this lady came up to me and she said, Mr. Caps, I remember you from CNN. She said, 
you need to get away from this place. This is not good. Well, Quad Cities since then has really been run pristinely. It's a great ballpark. It's right on the river. Floods occasionally, great fans, but I didn't even start there. So I, 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 I had been talking to a guy in Kane County who the, the ownership of Kane County took over the sounds that year. And he said, Hey, after Schmidt. No, this was right after Larry Schmidt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm trying to think of Bill's last name. Anyway, uh, anyway, he invited me to come down and, and work with Selby. And so I did the 97 season there with the sounds and Selby and I just had a great, great time. And, um, that's how we got to be friends and still are to this day. <clears throat> so when you left Nashville, was that when Round Rock came into play or was there no, another? No, but, but now, uh, when I left Nashville, the next year I was at, uh, in, uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And a friend of mine named Jay Miller, who had been the the guy who handled all the ticketing for the Texas Rangers, he and I had been friends since the early 80s. And I told him I was getting off into baseball and and broadcasting it. And he calls me and he says, hey, what do you think about Round Rock, Texas? I said, that's a pretty general question. I, I think it's 15 miles north of Austin. He said, no, no, no. Would you come to work there? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, uh, the Ryan family has asked me to run their operation there. We're going to have a double A Texas league team there in 2000. Would you like to come? I said, yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I had to find another job and I was living in New York then. And I got a job in another independent league, the Atlantic league in Atlantic city, but I'd already been hired in, in, uh, at the, at the uh, winter meetings of 98 to come to Round Rock in the year 2000. And that's that's the the Cliff Notes version of how all that came to be. And you've been the voice of Round Rock for two decades. The, well, we're in the two, in, the, in the, our third decade now. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yep. So what was it like building with Round Rock from the ground up as the lead guy? Well, it was really fun. Uh, the Ryan's uh, very supportive. Jay Miller, very supportive. Jay's now uh, running the t- new team in Wichita, Kansas. It's going to be a triple A. The Wichita, I think it's the, I think it's Wind the Wichita surge. Wind Surge. That's right. Uh, but, but Luther, we blew away the Texas League attendance record our first year and won the league our first year. We had over 660,000 people came to Round Rock Express AA games, Uh, and it just continued to grow. The second year we were in AAA in 2006, we won uh, the American division, our side of the league, and met Tucson in the playoffs. And and regular season, we drew over 700,000. And it's just been one of the – this is – tremendously uh, uh, fast-growing area. There are somewhere between two and three million people in the metropolitan area of uh, Austin and Round Rock. And between Georgetown, just north of Round Rock, and San Antonio, there's six million people. This is a booming, booming area here. And fortunately, 
while it is a football area, it's also a baseball area, and it really has been a wonderful, wonderful ride. And um, Ryan family still owns it with the uh, Sanders family in Houston, and they're great, great people to work for, and we just had a tremendous time with them. What are you listening for when you go back to listen to your broadcast, and what do you listen for for either young up-and-coming broadcasters or people that are wanting to get in this business? What are you... Okay, that's two real different questions. Let me answer the young one first. Um, I want to know how much enthusiasm that young person has. I get probably 30, 40 MP3 files during the course of a season, and it, it, I'm hearing young people, there are a few exceptions who are simply calling balls and strikes. And I don't know where that came from. I, this is a descriptive medium. You mm-hmm. must describe in radio. I, I think what happens a lot of times is kids just simply watch on TV and they don't pay that much attention to radio broadcasts. Exactly. And so, so what I, what I, and I just, <laughs> that part of it is missing in my opinion. And as, as a general rule, <clears throat> don't misunderstand. I hear some good ones, but you, you must know the game. This is something you cannot just sit down and pick up. I, I prefer to hear from kids who are, <clears throat> who have a, a, a have had, have had on a wet jock and have played it some because they're going to have a sensibility to it that other people won't have. I, I think that's, and, and the higher level they achieve, I think the more understanding they have of the game. I'm not saying you can't do it if you never played. I'm just saying it's going to be more difficult because you, you've missed out on 18 to 20 years of terminology of being a fan of knowing how things got to be the way they are. And I just think it's essential. Now, when you when I listen to myself, I just want to see if I'm maintaining enthusiasm, if I'm uh, use if I have a color announcer along, if I'm using uh, that person, uh, and and really working them in situations that really need expounding. And, and look, I, I'm blessed here because there's like. Somebody told me not long ago there's like 60, 60 plus ex major leaguers that live within a forty five minute drive of our ballpark, and so uh, you know I, I use probably ten or eleven of those guys during a normal season, rotate them in and out with college coaches uh, who are around here, and we've got you know we've got it's not just the University of Texas. We have Concordia University, Texas here. We have St. Edwards University here. That that's a, a St. Ed's is a D two, Concordia is a D three. Southwestern in Georgetown is a D three. Mary Harden Baylor up in Belton, forty miles away, is a D three. Uh, and let's see who else. That we Incarnate have. Word. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, no, no, no. That's down in San Antonio. Oh yeah. Uh, um, Houston Television is here. 
and and we've had the Houston Tillotson coach with us before. And and all this does is is expand uh, their horizons into professional baseball, and we get some of their fan base listening. And it's just a and I and I've used some high school coaches from time to time, and that's always kind of huge, simply because they're they're they appreciate the chance to get get on with us, and it's uh, I mean it's great high school baseball in this in this state. I mean absolutely incredible the number of uh, Collegiate players, high schools turn out, and professional players as well. Speaking of high school, I know you do some color analyst work with football and I think some basketball from time to time when your baseball broadcast duties are over. Do you feel like you gain more for your baseball broadcast doing those other sports? Well, I don't do them regularly, and as time has passed by, I just don't do them at all. Uh, I, I've done some high school football around here, and it's just its just not my game. Uh, my game is really being able to associate with players, managers, and coaches in baseball because I know the, the sport better. I played in high school. I had a chance to play in college if I hadn't had six concussions <laughs> as a quarterback. Uh, and and I, I'm just – I'm just not that much of a football guy, and basketball is uh, – well, I'll, I, long story short, I own a, a piece of an internet broadcasting company here in Austin, and I, I could go and do all the high school football or basketball I wanted to do. I just don't choose to do it. Uh, Karen and I have a, a great, great home here Uh <laughs> My youngest daughter is here in Austin. Uh, stepson and daughter-in-law and grandson is here, and so nice. we have we have uh, grandchildren spread from uh, Austin, Texas, to Corsicana, Texas, to Atlanta, Georgia, and so we in the off season, in a normal off season, would have been traveling to see them. And uh, and Karen and I like to travel overseas to Europe, and we try to do that. We can't do it now, obviously, but, <laughs> but that's that's sort of what we do. And and, and it's uh, you know my baseball season runs me from January to September, and so by the time we get done in September in a normal year, it's time to shut it down and 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 just bring the family together and get back on track that way. As a broadcaster with Lovely bride for as long as you, you and her have been married. How well, tough uh, is it as a broadcaster to handle the baseball broadcast and still have a family to come home to? Well, Luther, I it, 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 the news business was the one that was really bad for that, and and I have been divorced before, and Karen and I have known each other for. God, 27 years and been together eight of those. And, but she gets it. I mean, her, my, my stepson is a huge baseball fan. He's a, he is a, uh, HR, HR lawyer and he works with Keller Williams and has a great gig, but he's a baseball fan first and foremost. And so, he trained his mother, Karen, to be a baseball mom, and it's played out very well that she's a baseball wife because she gets it, <laughs> she understands it, she goes to games with me, she travels with me some. 
which is really terrific. And we've got grandsons that play and, and they love it. So it's, uh, it's, it's all worked out very well. And especially leaving the news business turned out to be such, such a lifesaver for me in so many ways. So when you're doing the long West coast road trips, like in Fresno, Sacramento, on those nice little excursions, How do you keep yourself from going insane knowing that you're going to be going all the way from the central time zone to another time zone at least two hours? Okay. I'm going to give you the lecture that I gave to Travis Driscoll, a former pitcher in the Pacific Coast League, when he and a couple of his teammates were standing at, at 430 in the Iowa airport, the Des Moines airport, screaming and bitching about all <laughs> the travel in the PCL. <laughs> Here's what I said. Boys, I'll tell you what bad travel is. Get on a 747 and fly into a war zone. Fly 26 hours into that war zone. Go over there for eight months. Uh, work 17 hours on, seven off for eight months without a day off. Eight months without a day off. Yeah. And get back on that plane and fly back. Then start screaming at me about how bad travel in the PCL is. Luther, listen. Uh, I view travel as an opportunity to expand my horizons and meet people. Nothing about it drives me crazy other than the 3 a.m. wake-up calls, and that doesn't even drive me crazy because guess what? I will If we're on Southwest Airlines, I will upgrade and get a choice seat, and I will have a two-hour nap or a four-hour nap depending on how far we're flying. <laughs> so, so, and then wherever I go, I'm going to work out. I'm going to run. I'm going to lift. I'm going to do both. Uh, and that puts me in a pretty good mood. And then I say my prayers and thank God that I have the ability and the opportunity to broadcast baseball games. Mm -hmm. So I just can't get, I can't get upset by that lifestyle. Nope. And I'll tell you something else. Uh, that is that I'm really excited about. Um, this young man in Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, that has just begun a 501c3 uh, that, that I'll tell you about at some point. The aim is to get more and more young black men and women involved in broadcasting sports. And you'll be hearing about it from time to time. I'm not going to tell you his name. I'm not going to tell you the name of the organization because none of that's finalized yet. But I am all over that because of my background and because uh, I believe that sports broadcasting desperately needs more people. You know what? I'm glad you said that because I saw something the other day on Twitter I think it was from a football, a college football or something type of a newspaper that asked the question, why are there not more black play-by-play -play voices at the D1 level? The only thing is you have to go all the way down to a Florida A&M or another small historically black college or and university to find 
African-American broadcasters because you're not going to find them at the D1 level. I mean, there's a young up-and-coming broadcaster that I've done an interview with on this podcast that could buck that trend because right now he's doing the women's PXP at Boise State. But after that, not no. much, unless no. you're looking all the way down at Jackson State. This young man who, who broadcasts in, in Scranton, Wilkesmere, is not <coughs> a computer. Uh, but I'm going to tell you this. Um, I'm going to do all of my power to help him with this. And uh, we, uh, Robert Ford, who's Astros broadcaster and is black, is a uh, radio broadcaster, is is all over it as well. And I'm going to tell you, um, God granting me the strength to keep going for as many years as I can. Uh, it's, it's the right thing to do. We mm-hmm. talked about being raised right. Yep. This is the right thing to do. It should have been done long years ago, long before now. Uh, but again, it, it's why I said, and we're putting a nice little bow on this, package but but uh but here's here's my thing uh and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier and it's this there's a different sense in this country to me now about racism and how to deal with it i hope i'm right about it i think i'm right about it and to me the timing this young man had in in scranton wilkes uh, to do this is absolutely impeccable. And I think it's going to work. And uh, if it does, um, this will go a long way. This is not about, about him or me being involved in this. This is just an idea that, that was put on this young man's mind. It needs to happen. I mean, look, yeah, I hope it's, it's not about us. It's about, who we can uh, get interested in doing this, who's black, who wants a chance. And I'm not talking about just males. I'm talking about women too. Yes. Um, because it, 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 because they're, they're right now there are two or three young women, uh, including Bill Mercer's granddaughter, who is. Emma T. Edmonds. She's the voice of the, uh, she's a, if Peter. there's a minor league season, the voice yeah. of the Portland Sea Dogs. That's right. And the double A level. That's right. And that's Bill Mercer's granddaughter. And, mm-hmm. and But I will promise you, there's a daughter or a granddaughter of an ex-major league black player who is, is, is good enough to do this or is at least good enough to dream the dream and, and to get taught. Uh, and then and we so, get caught in the numbers game. Huh? We get caught in the numbers game where – you know, we feel like we've made strides, but we no, no, no. We, we we can't talk that way anymore. We 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 have to we have to do this. It's not getting caught in the numbers game. It's just getting it done. It's okay. just getting it done. It's and it's time to get it done. Amen. So, what else you got? So, with now Major League Baseball getting hopefully their stuff finally finalized and they'll have a season, where do you think the deal with the minor league teams and leagues 
do you think either A, they're going to get something done, or do you think the deal for minor league baseball is going to have to be, you know, re-looked at and restructured? You're really trying to get me to lose my job, aren't you? No. <laughs> Kevin, if, I, if, I had, if I had the answer to this question, mm-hmm. I could just take over as commissioner. And you could be- <laughs> I, I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know that the minor leaguers will have a season at all. I just don't know. I don't have a feel for it. Now, we might sign off this program and sometime uh, – Today or in a week, we might find out. But right now, I mean, this has been a roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. Definitely. From, from, from start to now, and it still is. Mm-hmm. I, what worries me about baseball starting right now is what if we get started? And as, as we record this program, we're in the mm-hmm. middle of a huge spike in the number of COVID-19 cases in Texas again. Yeah. Why'd that happen? Well, we opened the state up and there's two other states that are Florida and Arizona are having the same thing. What if this happens in the middle of the baseball season? Once they get the 60 game season started, then you got to shut it back down again. Yeah. I don't know. And and, and so I just, I don't presume to have these answers and, and it makes me a little uncomfortable trying to talk about it. The (laughs) other side of it is, do I want baseball back? Yes. Uh, do I want it back at the, the expense of losing somebody's life? No. Absolutely not. So I just think it's time in, in this country for uh, baseball has had such a, an important people's lives. But I think it's time for everybody to step back and say, let's let earth heal. Let's let all the people who are so upset by the toxic nature of what's going on. Let's heal. Let's try to get back on track and become the people, the founding fathers knew we had to be uh, to make this country run the way it should run. In short, get back to the basics of common sense. Thank you. Caber, yes. this has been a blast. <laughs> I hope next time, <clears throat> if and when the sounds in Round Rock play here again. Oh, we will. Oh, there, there, that, that will happen. That, you know what? I actually liked the fact that the honky tonks and the dance halls, who had the idea of having the honky tonks versus the dance halls a couple of series out of the year, and I think it's like, what is it? A guitar or something as the trophy for the winner of that? We're um, not doing it. We were not scheduled to do it this year. Edward ah. But when, when, whenever it returns. <laughs> Luther, Luther. Let's just play sounds and express how about. That works for me. Good. Works for me. <laughs> you don't have to sit up there saying the the round rock dance halls hall. and the and the and the you music city how, and the music city honky tonks. Really, you do understand honky tonks is relatively easy. Yes, you get going very fast on a home run call or somebody going from first to third on a ground ball up the middle, and you start 
you could you can get yourself into some real trouble with the FCC with what Dan Falls could turn out to be. I'm oh just, my, yeah, you good. Just saying. Yes, just sir. Gabbard, this has been a blast, my friend. Anytime, Luther. Give me a call. We'll do it anytime you want. My thanks to the voice of the Red Rock Express, Mike Caps, for joining me on season two, episode eight of the Prime Broadcaster Podcast through LKBN. If you want information about this podcast, you can go to the Blind Broadcaster Podcast Facebook page. Play-by-play events on Facebook, you can go to the Luther King Broadcast Network Facebook page. Email me at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com if you have suggestions of people you'd like to hear on this podcast in future episodes and future seasons. You can also use that same email address to find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at king underscore tsb and on Instagram at lking.cardinalsfan85. Until next time, thanks for listening to this exciting episode of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, a proud partner of the Luther King Broadcast Network. You've been listening to the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Blind from birth, Luther King never let that stop him from attaining his goal of becoming a blind broadcaster. To find out more about the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network, search the Blind Broadcaster Podcast or Luther King Broadcast Network on social media or visit Luther King Broadcast Network. Network.com.